Welcome to the weekly podcast of Covenant Grace Church. Covenant Grace Church is one church meeting in multiple locations. This message was recorded at our Menifee campus. The descendants, if you look at 15.5, he says to Abraham, he says, look to the heavens and number the stars. If you're able to number them, so will your offspring be. And that's why on our cards we have all these stars here above Abraham, is that God was telling him, your descendants are going to be like the stars of heaven if you, can, if you can count them. Later in Genesis 22, he says, your descendants will be like the sand of the seashore. Um, in, in Genesis 17, he says, behold, my covenant is with you, in verse 4 of 17, behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be a father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall you be called Abram. That was his name in the beginning, is Abram. And Abram meant exalted father, which is a super awkward name for a guy that has no kids. And it's 75. He's like, hey, I'm exalted father. Where are your kids? Oh, I don't have any. It's like, okay. You know, parents can name their kids things that turn out to not be the best names. But God makes it even worse because he calls him Abraham. And now his name means father of a multitude of nations. Okay? He says, no longer will your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham. For I will make you a father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. And I will make you into nations and kings will come from you. And so he gives him this new name. And then he reaffirms the promise of the land. He reaffirms the promise of blessing. And God believes it. I mean, sorry, Abraham believes it. Take a look at Genesis 15.6. Abraham believes what God promised. If you look at Genesis 15.6, it says, He believed the Lord and it was counted to him as righteousness. Abraham puts his faith in the Lord's promise, even though there's no evidence of it yet. Um, you might ask yourself, like, well, what is faith? And in our culture, faith is used in really weird ways. Like, faith is just believing things against evidence or, you know, just a, a, a blind leap in the dark or something like that. Guys, faith is not a leap in the dark. It's trust in a person who has shown himself faithful. It's like any relationship. Faith in God is trust in a person that's shown himself faithful. It is not a leap in the dark. Faith is trust. It's trust in somebody that deserves to be trusted. God deserves to be trusted, and Abraham trusted him. And it's, so it says in Genesis 15 that when he believed God, it was counted to him as righteousness. This is the coolest thing ever, guys. This is righteousness being credited to Abraham as a gift. So that when Abraham first believed, God from then on through the rest of his life treated Abraham as if he was a perfectly righteous person, even though he wasn't. He credited righteousness to him. And this is the same way that God responds to faith now. If you'll believe in God's promise through Christ, from this time on, God will treat you as if you are a perfectly righteous person, even though you're not. That's what the gospel says. Amen. And, uh, and so Abraham believes God. Uh, we see that in Genesis 15, 6. But then in Genesis 15, 8, we see this. He says to, to the Lord, he goes, oh, Lord God, how will I know I'll possess it? It's interesting right there, two verses apart. So Abraham believes God, and then Abraham has a hard time believing God. You know, there's a struggle there. I believe, but I, I have unbelief. I'm, I'm struggling here. And you can see why. It's been a long time when these two chapters. And Abraham is no closer to having any of these things he promised. So God keeps coming back going, I'm going to give you those descendants. I'm going to give you that land. I'm going to give you that glo- make you a global blessing. And over and over again, he's looking at his life and he's going like, when? <laughs> you know, when is this going to happen? Right? He has no kids. In the ancient world, childlessness was viewed as a total disaster. And he's too old to have kids. I love what Paul says in Romans about him. He says that Abraham's body was as good as dead because he was about 100. That's nice, huh? And that's inspired. That's God saying, dude, your body's as good as dead, you know, because you're about 100. So he, how is he going to have kids? And then the land, you know, Abraham just saw the land. He took him to see it. But guess what? People live there. There's like 10 nations that live there. 
He's like, here's your land. It's like kind of occupied, Lord. So Abraham keeps going back in and looking at it, almost like somebody would peek in some, a stranger's window, you know, admiring the house, like, ooh, it's going to be great when I live in here. You can imagine when he's coming by the land, the kid's going, Dad, the creepy old guy's at the window again. You know, like that's what he is for the land. It's not really his, not yet. And so, and then the global blessing thing. Guys, in the ancient mindset, there was no way to imagine a childless, landless man having global significance. This guy's a nobody. He's rich, but he's a nobody, right? And so Abraham struggles to see himself the way God does. God sees him as the most blessed man in the world. And guys, by the way, that's you too if you trust in Christ. If you're trusting in Christ, the promises of God make you the most blessed person in the world. And yet Abraham's circumstances contradict the promise. You guys feel like that sometimes? That, that your circumstances are contradicting, your experience is contradicting God's promise? Anybody ever feel like that? You know, here I am in Christ, I'm the most blessed person on earth, and yet you might have a really rough marriage, you might have really rough health problems, you may have lost loved ones recently, um, you're dealing with financial problems, living paycheck to paycheck or worse, maybe you're dealing with a rebellious kid, and God's saying, you're the most blessed person on earth, you're like, it doesn't match. And that's the way the Lord was, that's the way uh, Abraham was here. And so Abraham asked him in Genesis 15, 8, he says, oh Lord God, how will I know I'll possess it? And then the Lord answers him in a really strange way. And so he goes, how will I know that I'm going to possess these descendants in this land and this global blessing? And this is what he says. God, the Lord says, bring to me a heifer three years old and a young goat three years old and a ram three years old and a turtle dove and a young pigeon. You're like, hey, weird answer. And this seems really strange, guys, to us, but it didn't seem strange to Abraham. He knew exactly what this was. And it says, and he brought them all, and he cut them in half. He knows what's going on here. And laid them halves against each other, but he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down to try and eat the carcasses, Abram drove them away. This seems really weird to us, but it isn't weird to Abraham. He knew exactly what it was. This is called, in the ancient times, cutting a covenant. And so if two people were going to make a solemn promise, what they would do sometimes is take these large animals, cut them in half, put half here, half there, and then they would walk in between the cut-up animals. And the idea was is that the promise I'm making today, if I don't keep this promise, may I be torn in half like these animals. Pretty intense. It's like, do you promise? Do you pinky promise? Do you torn up animals walk through the dead, you know, bloody path promise? Right? And so that's what this was. It's may I be torn in two like these animals. If, if I don't keep my promise today. And so Abraham, what he expects is he expects God's going to make him walk through, right? He's going to cut up these animals. He's going to walk through. Or maybe God in him will walk through. But he's certainly walking through and make this promise. And so he gets this bloody stage set. He's about to do it. And then look at verse 12. Something really weird happens. It says, As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. And the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. And then I'll bring judgment on the nations that they serve, and afterwards they will come out with a great possession. As for you, you shall go your way to your father in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. And when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed through the pieces. This is crazy. So this is God walking through the pieces alone. 
And we know that because this imagery of folk, smoke and fire, this is very common in Exodus. You think of the pillar of smoke, pillar of fire, think of the burning bush, think of Sinai with the smoke and the fire. This is God alone passing through the pieces of the, of the torn up animals. And by walking through this alone, what God's saying is he's, he's calling down a curse on himself. God's calling down a curse on himself if he doesn't keep the promise that he's making to Abraham. He says, may I be annihilated if I don't keep this promise to you, if I fail to keep the promise of the land and the descendants and the global blessing. And this is the amazing thing, guys, because God doesn't owe Abraham anything. Keep in mind, when he met him, he's a moon worshiper, you know, and Haran. God's not obligated to give him anything. And then God makes this covenant with him, this deadly serious covenant, and says, I am now obligating myself to you. I'm obligating myself to you, someone who doesn't deserve anything from me but only judgment. That's the state we're in, right? We don't deserve anything from the Lord. We, all we deserve from the Lord is judgment. And yet through his covenants, he obligates himself to us solemnly in a way like that. It's amazing. It's called grace, guys. Grace is God's favor to those who deserve his disfavor. And God, the real God that exists, is the kind of God who will obligate himself by his promises to those who haven't done anything to earn it. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that great that that's the God that exists? The God that exists is the kind of God who obligates himself to people that don't deserve anything from him. And he cannot lie, he cannot break his promises, and we receive it just by faith. And so, guys, your certainty of future blessing isn't based on your performance, it's based on God's trustworthiness. Because a lot of times we think that. We think that somehow, you know, salvation's mine to keep up, or God's future blessings are mine to keep up. They're not. We are blessed based on God's performance, not ours. And, um, you know, gospelless religion would say, you know, your blessing is based on your performance, but the gospel says that your blessing is based on God's performance. And guys, when you get this, it's super freeing, and I have no illusions that everyone in this room that professes Christ actually has gotten this. I'm not saying you're not saved. I'm just saying you haven't just really gotten what grace is about. This is all on God. You guys realize that, right? That salvation is all on him. He makes a unilateral covenant with you. He makes a promise with you. And so faith, guys, is not a leap in the dark, but trust in a person who has shown himself faithful. And I want to just show you real quickly how faithful God's shown himself to be. Okay, so this is going to be quick. Here we go. So God gave Abraham a son. The son's name is Isaac, just as God promised. Then Isaac has a son named Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons. I think there's a song there. Jacob, Jacob then plays favorites with one of his sons, Joseph. The other sons, they get jealous. They sell him to slave traders, right? He ends up in Egypt as a slave. He eventually works his way up and ascends just under Pharaoh. A famine comes. It would wipe out Abraham's descendants. But then what happens? They go to Egypt to beg, and Joseph's there to take care of them. And so God moves the whole family into Egypt to, to enjoy uh, Joseph's help and protection. And so God actually preserved all of Abraham's descendants um, through that, just as he promised. In Exodus 1.5, it says that there were 70 people in that family when they entered Egypt. But over that next 400 years, their population just exploded. It's like rabbits in Australia or something. It's like crazy. So they go in 70 people. 400 years later, it says in the first census they took that there were 603,550 fighting men, which means there's over a million people, right? If you got that many men that could fight, and then you got the men that can't fight, and the kids, and the, and the women, this is like well over a million people in 400 years, just as God promised, right? Out of fear of that growing Jewish population, the Egyptians develop a system of oppression and enslavement. But then God sends a rescuer in Moses about 1446 B.C. He comes, he rescues them out of slavery, just as God promised. 
Then Moses leads them to Sinai where they receive the law and they can organize as a nation. But due to their sin, they have to wander, right? It's kind of like the coach saying, you got to go do some laps, right? And so they do laps. They do laps for 40 years. But then after 40 years, they finally enter the promised land, the land of Canaan. And under Joshua, they get all the land just as God promised, okay? So in Joshua 21:45, it says, Not one word of all that God promised uh, failed to come to pass for the house of Israel. All came to pass. Isn't that awesome? Just as God promised. Then they had judges that ruled over them. Then they had kings. In 1 Kings 4, it says that their numbers were as the sand of the seashore, just as God promised. Under King David, they become a powerful nation. They become influential. Um, then under his son, King Solomon, they're starting to even have international influence. You see like the, the Queen of Sheba coming and others coming because of their prosperity and his knowledge. They're be- starting to become like a blessing to the nations, just like God promised, right? And then what happens? It seems like Solomon, in the age of Solomon, all the promises that God made through Abraham are going to come to pass, right? It's like you got the land, you got the people, starting to be a blessing in the nations, and then it starts to unravel, right? King Solomon turns away from the Lord. Uh, Solomon's heirs war, and they split Israel in half. By 586 BC, both halves are conquered and brought into exile. They do later get their land back, but when they get it back, they later end up oppressed by the, by the Romans. But guys, you know what's really cool in Scripture is that the Psalms and the prophets, they don't give up on the promise. Over and over again, you see, especially in the Psalms and in the prophets, that, that God is going to fulfill this promise to make Israel, to make Abraham's descendants a blessing to all nations. Because guys, remember, it does not depend on human beings to accomplish or earn God's promise. God's promised it. He's going to do it in spite of the failure of his people. So around 5 BC, Jesus is born, right? A birth that's more miraculous than Isaac's. Uh, Galatians 3.16 says that Jesus Christ is the true son of Abraham, the one who would come and bless all nations. And so you see right from the beginning of his life, the nations start coming. We saw a couple weeks ago, the Magi show up. These weird kind of magician type people are coming from Babylon because they saw a star. I mean, this is the beginning of that fulfillment, a blessing to all nations. The nations are streaming to him. And then you see later the Samaritans. You saw that revival of Samaritans happen. Um, And then you see right before the cross, the Greeks are seeking him. And Jesus knows when the Greeks come to seek him that it's about time for the cross. And he says this in John 12, When I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. And he was showing what kind of death he was going to die. Through the cross, Jesus Christ drew all nations to himself. And then he's raised, right? He's raised up. He's, he's around for 40 days. Right before he ascends, he gathers his disciples together and he says, this is the time for you guys to go to all nations. He sends them out to make disciples of all nations, to fulfill the promise made to Abraham, to take the gospel of salvation to all nations, to every people group, okay? When it says nations there, it doesn't just mean like countries. It means people group. Um, International Mission Board says that there's 11,310 11, people groups in the world. And so that we're not talking countries, we're, not going, we're talking groups of people that because of language and culture or geography are their own set to where there would need to be a unique missionary to go to the next group, okay? There's these unique sets of people. And so there's a, a little over 11,000 people groups, but do you know how many of them are unreached? Unreached meaning that there's less than 2% Bible-believing Christians. About 6,400 of them are unreached still. 6,400 unreached people groups. Um, and there is about 3,100 unengaged ones, which means there aren't even missions in that area, okay? Cambodia is one of those places. As we give to Holly, we're giving to a place that actually has unreached people. And, um, and Jesus said, he said, when all these groups are reached, he'll return. And it's a completable mission. 
Isn't that amazing? When you think about missions, this is a completable mission. Once all those, and we don't know the exact number, but 11,310 people groups, once every one of them in the 6,400 that are left, once they're reached, Jesus said he would return when the gospel is preached to all nations. It's a completable mission. And it's something that some of you here are called to go out and complete, and the rest of us are called to support you. And so this is a mission that we have, and we see the beginning of it at Pentecost, right? And it's so cool to see the nations beginning to be reached. At first, they were Jews from every nation, and then later in Acts, we see uh, Gentiles from every nation streaming in to the kingdom as they believe in Christ, just as God promised, creating one global family. In Revelation 7, 9, it says what that global family looks like when it's all assembled. He says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation and every tribe and every people and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, crying out, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Isn't that amazing? Every tribe and people and language. Um, I, I just, you know, I think we need to emphasize this is not, Christianity is not a white guy religion. I hope you know that. Uh, Abraham, not a white guy. Jesus, not a white guy. Uh, Disciples, not white guys. And so uh, this is a a Jewish, this is a Middle Eastern thing, and it's spreading to every tribe, nation, people, and language. And um, we look at that vision of heaven, and I'll tell you what, heaven will be hell for a racist. Okay, This is not a religion that's in any way um, compatible with any kind of racism, because this is about all nations, all people, all tribes, all languages, just as God promised. God's drawing together one global, multi-ethnic, multi-racial family. And in Galatians 3.14, it says that he's doing this so that the blessings of Christ Jesus, um, the, so that in Christ Jesus, the blessings of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith, just as God promised. And all these people that come to Christ are sons and daughters of Abraham. In Galatians 3.28, it says, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. And if you are in Christ, then you are offspring's heirs, heir according to promise. Think about all these kids that Abraham's getting, right? From every tribe, nation, language, and people. And you might think, well, what about, what about Abraham's physical descendants? You know, it's going out to all worlds. What about its physical descendants? Romans 11 tells us that there's going to be a future revival coming in which massive amounts of Abraham's physical descendants, the Jews, will come to place their faith in Jesus the Messiah, their Messiah. This isn't my Messiah. He was their Messiah before he was my Messiah. And um, they're going to place their faith. And I would just say, pray for that. This is going to be an amazing thing to see. People that, you know, really did not trust in their Messiah and now are flooding to their Messiah. And, um, and it's a Messiah that belongs to them. Pray for that. And, and then what about the land? The land that Abraham's descendants received. They received everything, it says in Joshua. But there's more. There's more. If we look at um, Revelation 21 and 22, we know that God's going to renew the entire physical earth. And it's going to be given as the land to Abraham's descendants. In Romans 4.25, it says that Abraham and his descendants will inherit the whole world which is kind of wild. I mean, here he thinks he's getting this physical plot of land. He does get it for a while. His descendants do anyway. And, uh, and then now it's this land without borders. Like the promised land becomes a land without borders. And, I, and, and it becomes an everlasting possession, just like God promised in, in Genesis uh, 17.8. And I wonder if anybody's told Abraham about his gift. You know, because Abraham was promised certain things. He promised this plot of land. He's promised, hey, you're going to have kids. You know, they're going to be a blessing of the nations. And then look at what he gets. 
And I wonder if anyone's told him it. I wonder if God wants to keep it a surprise. You know, you can just imagine. You just imagine the Lord, you know, excited to show Abraham, like, hey, I got a surprise for you. And he goes, no, no, you told me what it was. No, 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 I didn't. <laughs> it's more than you thought. He goes, here is the land. And oh, by the way, it has no borders and there's no enemies on either side. Isn't that awesome? And then, and then he'd say, oh, and here's your descendants. And you may not recognize them. They're from everywhere. You know, these are your people. And oh, and your promised son, kind of Isaac, but more Jesus, this God-man in the flesh who is the Savior of the world. That was the, that was the son I really promised you. Isn't that awesome? You guys, God always delivers way bigger on his promises. You guys realize that? He always delivers way bigger than he promises. Way bigger. He did for Abraham. He's going to do it for you if you trust in Christ. And it just made me wonder, like, why do we doubt him? You know? Like, it's not like God's unproven in keeping his promises. When you know, when God first came to Abraham, you know, he didn't really know him yet and stuff. They had to get to know each other. Like, we know so much more. We have so much more reason to trust in him. Um, and guys, the, the part that we've seen fulfilled is, is insanely amazing. You know, if you just look at now, you know, there's this guy in Ur 4,000 years ago, and he's told he's going to have descendants who are going to bless all nations. And it turns out that from him will become the savior of the world. I mean, that like a sixth of the world population right now bows their knee to him. This is insane. This is so unlikely. This is so amazing. And if we see how well he keeps his promises, why don't we trust him for the whole thing? You know, why don't we trust him for the whole thing? He's done all this just as he promised. And so Abraham, he waits for decades, right? And he just sees little trickles of the promise coming through. He's waiting for a child. And that's what Advent's about. You know, we think about Advent. Advent is about waiting. Advent is about waiting for God's promise. In Advent, we look back to Christ's first coming, but we look forward to his second coming because we not yet received all the things he's promised. We haven't seen that global family yet. We haven't seen that ultimate promised land yet. We haven't seen our Savior face to face yet. And so we wait. And waiting's hard. Anybody have a hard time waiting? Waiting's hard. Waiting's a time of temptation. You know, we struggle to trust and wait for God to bring the blessings he's promised. And, um, and Abraham was certainly tempted. I mean, we're tempted to kind of take it on our own, you know? Like, I'm not going to wait for God to bring the promise. I'm going to grab the promise myself. I'm going, to, I'm going to find ways to bless myself. Abraham was tempted. He was tempted to take matters into his own hands, to secure the promised blessing for himself. You guys remember the lies that he told? You know, when he went to Egypt, he lies about Sarah and says, oh, she's not my wife, she's my sister. Um, kind of his sister, his half-sister. It's weird back then. But uh, he lies, says, oh, that's not my wife, and then they whisk her off to be somebody's, somebody's, uh, somebody's wife. I mean, it's crazy. And then he does it again, you know, with Sarah and Abimelech. Same thing, lies twice in the same way. It's a crazy deal. I mean, Sarah had to be rugged to follow this man around. Um, and what's he doing there? He's saying, like, if I don't lie, God's promise is at risk. Because if I lose my wife or I lose my life, then God's not going to fulfill all his promises. He's thinking it's up to him, right? She's thinking it's up to him. Um, He did it again with the whole Hagar issue, sex with your handmaiden thing. I mean, that's pretty major. Um, What's he doing there? He's thinking like, God's promise relies on me. I need to grab the promise for myself. I can't wait for God. Guys, all sin is an attempt to secure a blessing that God has promised more fully in Christ. This is super important to see. All sin is an attempt to secure a blessing that God has promised you more fully in Christ. People go after significance. They sin to get significance. They sin to get pleasure. They sin to get security, control, comfort. And you think all these things have been promised more in Christ. You say pleasure? Really? Especially pleasure. Um, Psalm 1611 says, he says of the Lord, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. 
You ever think of God that way? Is that your thought of God? When you think of God, do you think he is the source of pleasure and joy forever? Way better than anything in this world? C.S. Lewis said this, often quoted from The Weight of Glory. If we consider the unblushed promises of reward and the staggering nature of reward's promise in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. We are an ignorant child who wants to go on playing with mud pies in a slum because we can't imagine what it means to be offered a vacation at the sea. And then Lewis says we are far too easily pleased. What about glory and significance? Guys, what could be more glorious or give your life more significance than being a part of this promise through Abraham? There's nothing better than this, guys. We're messing with small things. What about control? A lot of times we sin because we want control. Guys, if this is the outcome God has for us and he's going to fulfill, why do we need to control this part of the story? <laughs> we already know the outcome. Why do we have to control this part of the story? Every sin, guys, is an attempt to secure a blessing that we've been more fully promised in Christ. But God is so gracious to him. It's so wild. He's so gracious to him during this time of waiting and learning, just like he's gracious to us. Do you know how Paul wrote about this time of Abraham's life? He wrote this in Romans 4.18. He said, Talking about Abraham, listen to how this sounds versus Hagar and Abimelech and Egypt and all that. He says this about Abraham. In hope, Abraham believed against hope that he should receive, that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so your offspring shall be. Listen to this. He did not weaken in his faith when he considered his body, which was as good as dead since it was nearly 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. You think, Paul knows the Old Testament, <laughs> you know? And this is inspired scripture. What is this? This is Paul writing from God's perspective. Abraham lived in grace. God is looking at him through the lens of grace. You stand in grace. If you're trusting in Christ, God views you that way. He sees your sin, he sees your struggle, but that's the story he writes about you. That's grace. And that grace changed him, and it's going to change you. It changed him. Abraham did finally learn to trust in God's promise. Remember that? It was when Sarah finally had the child. They named him Isaac. Do you know what Isaac means? It means son of laughter. This guy was obsessed with this kid, right? Keep in mind, Abraham is old enough not just to be this kid's dad, but his grandfather, his great-grandfather, and his great-great-grandfather. So he has all those kinds of affections, right? He has the grandfatherly ones, the great-grandfatherly ones, the dad wants everything for him. Isaac is his son, his, la- his son of laughter, his whole world, his little earthly all. This is everything to him. This is the, the whole promise of God is wrapped up in him. And when Isaac grew up, Abraham's trust in God's promise was tested. And if you look at Genesis 22, verse 1, it says, After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. And he said, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose in the morning, saddled his donkey, took the two young men with him, and Isaac his son. And he cut wood for the burnt offering. And he rose and he went to the place of which God had told him. And on the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. And Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey, and I and the boy will go over there and worship and come back to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took the knife and the fire. And they went, both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, My father, and he said, Here I am, son. And he said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham said, 
God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So they went up together. And when they came to the place of which God had told them, Abraham built an altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on the top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But an angel of the Lord called from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. And he said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear the Lord. See that you don't withhold your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, behind him was a ram caught in the thicket by its horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the place the Lord will provide. Can you imagine what would be going through Abraham's mind there? He's got his son, his little earthly all, his treasure, his son of laughter. The book of Hebrews actually tells us a little bit of what he was thinking. It says in Hebrews eleven nineteen, it says that Abraham considered that God was able to raise him from the dead, that he would receive him back by resurrection, from which, figuratively speaking, he did. And so in his mindset, he's like, I'm going to do what God said, and even if my son dies, God will still be good on all of his promises to me. He's still going to make it right. He's still going to fulfill his promises. He, he realized for the first time, he realized that it all depends on God. Doesn't depend on him, doesn't depend on Isaac, doesn't depend on anything he has in this earth. It's a totally different Abraham than he was before, right? He totally believes. He believes that my true blessing isn't tied to anything I have on this earth, including my loved ones. And that's an important thing to realize this time in Christmas time. Christmas time is a time when we feel more deeply the losses of our loved ones, the ones who have gone before us. And, um, and what we learn here is that no death, no loss in the world can stop God from making good on all of his promises. Guys, we're going to receive them all back by resurrection, right? And then in the end, we lose nothing. We can't, there's nothing that we can lose that will hamper God's promise from blessing you in a massive way. God's promise isn't dependent on us, it's dependent on him. It's dependent on a different father and son, right? It's dependent on a different father and son. It's dependent on the father and the son team that would truly save the world. It's dependent on a father who sent his son up a hill, right? Up a hill to, to die for us and to save us from our sins. And it depends on a son who went up that hill willingly, knowing exactly what was going to happen, carrying wood, right? And like Isaac, that son was bound. He was bound and outstretched on wood. But unlike Isaac, there was no substitute sacrifice for him that day. Because that son was the substitute sacrifice. Guys, the cross is about substitution. Just like that ram appeared to be the substitute for Isaac, Christ has appeared to be your substitute in God's judgment. It's about substitution. We try to put ourselves where only God deserved to be in our sin. And so he's put himself where we deserve to be. It's trading places. It's substitution. It's that you get to take the son's place as God's kid because he took your place as God's enemy. And so he raised that blade of judgment on Jesus Christ, the blade that we deserved. But the cool thing was, after the cross, he received his son back by resurrection, right? God's calling some of you guys this morning for the first time to trust him, for the first time to come to him. And you have far more information than Abraham ever had. You've seen the faithfulness he's had to Abraham. You've seen the faithfulness he's had through Christ. And so the call to you is to repent and believe in him today. Repentance means leaving all. It, it means leaving anything you have to leave, any, any sin behind, any weight behind. Just like Abraham left everything behind, you're to leave those things behind. That's repentance. And then belief is to trust in that promise. 
the promise that he has for you. And if that's you, let me know, because we're going to have a baptism in a few weeks. We'd love to, to baptize you. Um, if, please talk to me if you want to talk more about this. I'd love to talk to you more about this. But if you're already there, then during these next few songs, please come forward, and we're going to take the Lord's Supper right here. Um, and uh, the Lord's Supper is something that reminds us, guys, of the promises in Christ. It reminds us of how Christ has secured every blessing for you. And so during the next few songs, you can come forward, take the bread. The bread symbolizes Christ's bruised and bound and broken and pierced body for you. The cup represents his blood, which has the power to wipe away any sin. And to have a narrative written for you in God's mind that's like the one for Abraham. Didn't waver, (laughs) you know? It's amazing. And so as you take it, guys, have it be a reminder of what Christ has done for you, but also have it be a time of enjoying the presence of Christ. Because the Holy Spirit dwells in us, when we take the Lord's Supper, we're actually able to spiritually partake of Christ. We're actually able to enjoy him filling us in a new way. And so take, take that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your son, the true son of Abraham. And uh, we just pray, Lord, for your global mission. Lord, as we um, support Holly in Cambodia and as others here, Lord, um, that you have called to go out to the nations, we pray that you would make that clear to them, Lord, and make it clear to us. Make it clear to us so that we can support that. And Lord, we pray that many from, from our body would go out to the nations for those unreached people groups, Lord, because your son deserves that glory. He deserves to be worshipped by more and more people that you have called to him. And so we pray, Lord, that you would help us with that. We pray, Lord, for those who are here in this room, Lord, that they would feel a huge burden lifted as they understand grace, that you're the kind of God that obligates yourself to us um, out of pure grace. You make a promise to people that don't deserve it, and you're going to keep it. And we thank you for that. We thank you for being in that covenant promise. And as we worship, Lord, we pray that we would worship you with full hearts, knowing that all of our greatest problems have been solved and all our best days are to come. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to the weekly podcast of the Menifee Campus of Covenant Grace Church. If you'd like to know more about Covenant Grace Church, visit us online at covgrace.org.